So just as that comes by, just uh, have a little piece of chocolate on us. Enjoy it. It is interesting on Mother's Day weekend, I get to see uh, more families. I get to see families filled out. Folks come to see their mom. It's good to know that, uh, that uh, the tradition holds. And um, we are grateful, to, grateful for you. As you know, we've been looking at uh, the kingdom of heaven. In, in the book of Matthew in particular, because Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers who uses the term the kingdom of heaven to describe the kingdom of heaven. We've talked about reasons for that, perhaps because Matthew being Jewish would not use the name God. Luke being a Greek says the kingdom of God 33 times. Uh, John and Mark don't use the term much at all. Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven 32 times as his description of these things about God. Today we're going to take one of those passages that's familiar to a lot of people. We're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 25 at the story of the ten virgins. Okay? What I'm hoping to do today, what I'm hoping to accomplish today, is for you to see it in its context. Cultural, historical, biblical context. Because this, te- this text often gets used as one of those scare passages in the Bible. You know what I mean? Five virgins didn't even know they were lost. That could be you. Right? Five of them had oil aplenty. The others didn't. They had to go to the Safeway and see if they could find some. And Jesus came while they were gone. Isn't that the way it comes across? Isn't that the way people throw it out there at us? We've got this text and it says five were saved and five were lost and their door was closed and they couldn't get in. And when they knocked on the door, the bridegroom says, I don't know who you are. I think this passage is not intended by Jesus to give that message. I think it's got some context that will help it make, help make it much clearer about what it's really talking about. And that's what I hope to accomplish today. That's what I hope we're going to find in the text today. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Understand that this is not something we do today, but it was something that was always done in the first century. That a, a wedding was a long thing. It started with a betrothal a year before the wedding, where the father would usually pick the bride... The son and the father would, would, would go to that household. They would negotiate a bride price. The son would make his promises and his commitments. This was actually in a written contract. The bride's dowry would then be written also in that contract. And there would be a negotiation. And at the end of that negotiation, she was betrothed to be married. And once you were betrothed to be married, it was this, as if you were married. You had to behave in that way toward this man. In fact, you were to not date anybody or look at anybody or be seen with anybody. After that, you were, you were already married as far as the culture was concerned. That's why it was such a scandal when, when Mary turned up pregnant while she was betrothed to be married. Okay? I'm sure it wasn't the first time it had ever happened, but it was a scandal in her small town. What was going on during this betrothal period was the husband would go off. He would build a room, usually on his father's house. Remember, Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions, many rooms. 
I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. It's a marriage contract being described. It's a marriage that he's describing. So during this betrothal, he would go to his dad's house, he'd break out a wall, he'd add some to the house, he'd build a room for his, himself and his wife. When that room was done, to his father's specifications... The father would declare it done and then send him for his bride. Sound biblical to you? Jesus says of his return, no one knows my return except for my father who is in heaven. I'm sure Jesus knows now, but at the time, that's a very, very specific cultural statement. So when the father said the house is ready, you can go. The bathroom works, the windows closed, the door locks. This is good. You can go get her. Then there would be an announcement throughout the town. And there would be a set of ladies, young women, virgins in the community, who would sit outside the bride's home and await the coming of the groom so that they might be his escort into the wedding feast. Okay, That's the setting of of our ten virgins. They've gone. They've taken their lamps. They're now sitting and waiting for the bride. There's been an announcement. The bride is coming. But no one knows exactly when he's coming. No one knows exactly when it is. He might show up at 2 o'clock. He might show up at 10 o'clock. Remember, this bride doesn't show up till midnight. Or this groom doesn't show up till midnight. I don't know what's keeping him so long. Had to get his hair cut or something. Whatever it was, he doesn't show up till late. And the ladies have a problem. But let's look at the context of the chapter a little bit. Jesus, in the previous chapters, makes this statement in chapter 23, at the end of chapter 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said, Jerusalem, I'm, I'm leaving. You're not going to see me again until the second coming, till the bridegroom comes. Okay, piece number one, continuing in the next chapter. Remember the divide, the dividers in your, in your chapters are not there in the original language. So the next thing Jesus says, the next thing Matthew records, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, have you ever tried to console somebody? Ever tried to distract them from something? They say something that's kind of hard or mournful or discouraging, and you kind of distract them. You go, oh, well, wait, 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 look at that bird. You know, you're trying to distract them from the emotion that's bothering you. Well, Jesus had just said, Jerusalem, how I've longed for you, how I wish to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks, but you've rejected me, and so you're not going to see me until the, till the end. Until the second coming. And those words exit his mouth and the disciples as he's walking out of Jerusalem say, Hey, hey, isn't the bil- aren't the buildings cool? Look at Jerusalem. Isn't it nice? Look, shiny object. They're uncomfortable with the emotion it appears to me. And so they point Jesus back to Jerusalem. Look at Jerusalem. Look at Jerusalem. Look how cool it is. Look at the temple. Look how magnificent it is. Jesus says, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather your children. Disciples, don't you understand? The destruction of Jerusalem will be complete. The temple itself will not have a stone standing on top of another stone.
You see, in the greater context of Matthew, you have to understand what Jesus knows that the church cannot know. By the way, if you're filling in your little sheet, the little underlying parts will be the parts you fill in. Jesus knows things that the church cannot know. It's probably around 60 A.D. The zealots will rebel against Rome in just about five or six years. And they will continue in that rebellion for four years until 70 A.D. At the end of that time, Jerusalem will be destroyed and the temple will not have one stone standing upon another. Why is God bringing this back to Matthew's mind at this point? Because this event is just around the corner. It's a half a year, a half a decade away, and this will all start to fall. Jesus knows that the zealots will rise to full rebellion. And God is reminding Matthew of that fact. Number two, Jesus knows that they will not defeat the Romans. It's only been a hundred years since they threw out the Greeks. They think they might be able to do it to the Romans. Jesus knows they're not going to be able to do it. So he tells them this, this building will be destroyed. This time is coming. It's going to be very, very hard. And God brings this back to Matthew's memory at about 60 AD because by 70 AD all of this is done. And the church needs to know. Jesus knows that the rebellion will destroy Israel. You and I look back on it now. It's 2,000 years ago now. We're looking back on it and say, yeah, that's exactly what happened. But then it was a future thing. It was future when Jesus said it, when Jesus said Jerusalem will be destroyed. It was future but very near when Matthew wrote it and as a reminder to the people of God. And finally, Jesus knew that Rome would rule for a 1,000 more years. And so when this rebellion gets cranking, when the zealots begin to build their political alliances, begin to stir up trouble in the city, begin to stir up trouble in the countryside, they begin to build a coalition to fight against the Romans, they begin to stockpile weapons, they begin to lay plans. When all of that begins to roll out, about 60 A.D., between 60 and 65 is when we think this book was written. All of a sudden, Matthew is reminded of these words. Jerusalem will be destroyed. How I wish I could have gathered your children like a hen gathers her chicks. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. In ten years, maybe five years, it'll be a smoldering pile on top of a hill. When described by Josephus, an eyewitness, he says the burning of the temple was so intense and so bright that if anybody ever saw it from a distance, they thought the entire city was on fire. The Romans, when they finally got, had had enough and broke through the temple walls to fight the last of the zealots who were holed up in the temple itself, they let the full measure of their wrath grow on the city and they killed everything inside, man, woman, and child. When the gold of the temple began to melt down and flow into the cracks for days, the Romans pushed blocks off the temple to grab that gold that was laying there that had cooled and settled into the cracks around the temple. The looting continued until they found everything they could find. 
until there was not a rock still standing upon another. And when when the the story of Matthew 24 begins to pour out and the disciples ask Jesus, when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming? And they begin to tell the story. When Matthew begins to explain to the people of God at the time of this great destruction what is coming, he says this very simple thing. When these things start to come to pass, flee the city. Get out of Jerusalem. And as a result, when the zealots began to rise up and the Romans began to come to the city, Thousands of Christians left Jerusalem. Thousands of Christians refused to take part in the, in the rebellion. Thousands of Christians, therefore, did not lose their lives. And it was the beginning of the great separation between Christianity and Judaism. He would finish 50 years later with the revolt in 135. But in these words, in these passages that we're walking through, the Christians saw a word from God when they faced a horrendous historical cultural event. And in that word from God, the church was saved. Christianity, by and large, escaped the wrath of the Romans in Jerusalem. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. You see, when Matthew was writing these words, he wasn't writing them under his own authority or his own inspiration. He was writing them under the inspiration and guidance of the one who knew the end from the beginning, who knew what was coming, who knew all those things that I accounted for you and many, many, many more. That's why, as he lays it out, he lays out a plan for the Christian church. At the end of this passage, after 24 passes, so you go through, 23 was the closing statement, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 24, the disciples said, oh, look, shiny object. And Jesus then described what would happen, happen both at the end of Jerusalem and at the end of time. As he wound together this picture of the end, he began to explain what what would happen. When you get to 25, he starts with a bunch of parables. He's just told them Jerusalem will be destroyed. He's just given them this picture of of the end of time. And now he shifts gears almost without the clutch. You can hear the gears grinding in the heads of the disciples as he slams it into the next gear. And he starts chapter 25 with a parable. And these parables, these next parables all have one thing in common. They're all about waiting. Because the master delays his coming. By 60 A.D., the church had been around for 30 years waiting for Jesus. Have you ever waited for something for 30 years? Anybody? You know, I occasionally come across someone who says, I've been waiting for my whole life for X. And they have a sadness about them. There's a longing in a person who's waiting. An unrequited unsatisfied longing that they're just struggling with. Oh, man. Been waiting. Been waiting. Been waiting. Been waiting for something for a few years? Been waiting for something for a few months? These are stories about waiting, and this church has been waiting for Jesus to return for 30 
years and he hasn't showed up. And as Matthew begins to write the story, as he begins to write this, God inspires the next reminder. Remember the parables of Jesus after he told you about the end of time? Remember the parables of waiting? Write those down, Matthew. And Matthew begins to write. The servants tasked with caring for the household. The master goes away. At the end of 24, the master goes away and leaves his servants to take care of the household. The, long, the master's uh, come, return is delayed. Some of the servants continue doing what the master asked them to do. Some of them start living a hard life, start picking on the others, start, start becoming drunkards. And what does he say when he returns? Those servants found doing what the master recalled will be in the good graces of the master's. Those, who, who, those servants found doing what they wanted and ignoring what the master asked them to do will be in the poor graces of the master. Don't be those guys. Number two, the ten virgins, the one we're going to get to here in a minute. Ten virgins were waiting on the bridegroom. Remember, they've gathered outside. They've all brought their lamps. They're waiting for him to come, and he's delayed beyond what they expect, and so some of their lamps are without oil. Number three, the parable of the talented servants. They're given talents, the master goes off, he's delayed for a long time, and when he finally returns, he finds that two of them have been faithful and one of them buried his talent. <clears throat> Excuse me. Number four, the story of the dividing of the sheep and the goats. Remember, the master has returned, and when the master returns, he separates the sheep and the goats, the sheep to his right, the goats to his left, sheep being a symbol of Israel, goats being a symbol of everything else, the right being a symbol of a blessing, the left being a symbol of cursing. These parables explain preparedness for the end. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five of them were what? Foolish. Five of them prepared, five of them wise, five of them foolish. Now, they're all virgins, right? This is a representation of the church, the virgin bride of Christ. When you describe that, when they're described as virgins, that is what it's describing. These are the followers of God. These are the followers of, the, of, his, of his. Some of them are wise. Some of them are foolish. By the way, they all have lamps. They've all got a light. They're all going around singing the song. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. But when I run out of oil, I'm going to be in trouble. Those who are foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom was delayed, they slumbered and slept. Now, we have this statement about the church. Oh, the church at the end of the time, they're horrible. They fall asleep. According to this parable, everybody sleeps. According to this parable, the whole church is asleep when Jesus returns. The whole church. Five of them fell asleep prepared. Five of them didn't. But they were all asleep. The whole group slumbers. The master is delayed and the whole group is forced to rest, to slumber as the master is waited for. The whole group. Okay? So you can't point at your neighbor and say, you're the sleeping one. Because the neighbor can point right back at you and say, so are you. In this parable, everybody's in the same camp. Everyone has lamps. Everyone has oil. Everyone's waiting for the bridegroom and everybody falls asleep. The only difference is... Five of them brought a quart jar of oil to fill that thing up when it got empty. Five of them prepared for a long wait. On its surface, on just a very surface quick read, is not the text saying, be prepared for a long wait. It's been 2,000 years. If you had told these people in the first century it's going to be 2,000 years, they'd have all left the church. Thank God that every generation thinks it's going to be their generation. Because we couldn't wait past that. 
But he is saying, be prepared for a long wait. Why? Because God is eminently patient and he is waiting for the last soul to be saved. He's not in some big rush to try to get this done. He's waiting for the last one to come through the door before the door gets closed. The long wait is a grace of God. It may not be a grace for you. You might be a little frustrated. There may be some longing in you, but it's a grace of God for the person who hasn't come through the door yet. And we should be thankful for it. Be prepared for a long wait. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom delayed, they all slumbered. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. You read that was the, that was the watchword of the Adventist church as its birth in the Millerite movement. The Millerite movement used this phrase. The Millerite movement, when it was preparing for Jesus to come in the middle 1800s, in 1844, the shout, the cry across America under the Millerite's voice was, The bridegroom cometh. Prepare, behold, the bridegroom cometh. I'm using the King James English because they got an uth in there. Okay, But what you have to understand is this, this cry, this preparation cry, the bridegroom is coming. It's a very real thing. When the bridegroom was seen approaching the village, approaching the, 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 the home of the girl to whom he was to marry, a shout went out. They woke up people in town. This was, this was, you know, Paul Revere on his ride around. The British are coming. The British are coming. This is the Paul Revere riding around town saying, the bridegroom's coming. The bridegroom's coming. The bridegroom's coming. And people were getting up and turning on the lights of their house and getting ready for this party that was now going to last for seven days. They probably got up, took a shower, put some clothes on, maybe ironed some extra clothes. Seven-day party's a long time. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. The wise answered and said, no. Do you ever think the wise virgins are also kind of mean? Selfish virgins. It's me that way. I'm thinking, oh, come on. You guys are all members of the church. Help each other out here. Give a brother a little helping hand. Or in this case, a sister. But here's what they said. No, let there should not be enough oil for us and you. In other words, we may not have enough for both of us, and we have a responsibility to, to guide the bridegroom into the wedding with these lamps. So go and buy some for yourselves. And so they go. They go to buy something. They go down to the Seven Eleven that's open at midnight, and they try to buy some lamp oil. And apparently they get some because they come back to the wedding feast expecting to be let in, expecting to to be a part of it. But they've already missed what their role was. Their role was to stand with their lamps and, and lead the bridegroom into the wedding. And that's too late for that. They missed that opportunity. It's gone. And this is what Matthew 25, verse 13 says. The, the comment on the parable by Jesus. Watch, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. What does the parable say its purpose and its meaning is? It's the Boy Scout motto. Be prepared. Those of you who are Boy Scouts have no idea. We're never in Boy Scouts. Don't have, have, no, have no idea what I just did. Boy Scouts, this is the deal right here. Okay. My fingers don't straighten out as well as they used to. Be prepared. Watch. 
Watch because you don't know when he's going to come. Be prepared for a long wait. Be prepared for a long wait. That's the point of the parable, right? That's the point of the story. Make preparations for a long wait. Does it tell you how to make preparations? Show up with oil. That's what it said. And I have heard people, I have, I've tried myself to explain this without its greater context. What is the oil? Well, it's the oil of the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you get less of the Holy Spirit? And how do you get more of the Holy Spirit? It's kind of a problem to describe that, isn't it? And how do you run out of the Holy Spirit when you really need Him? Does that sound like security in Christ to you? Me either. But that's what you're left with if you try to explain the oil problem. So continue. First of all, the question in my heart, how do I get to be one of the wise virgins? Because nobody wants to be the foolish virgins, right? Nobody is signing up for that job. So how do you get to be one of the wise? Continue reading the parables. The next parable is a parable of the talents. Remember? The next story, he says, Oh, by the way, the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, another he gave one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on his journey. The next parable begins to unwind some of the questions about the virgins. He says, oh, by the way, here's another element of this. Let me explain something more about the kingdom of heaven. It's like a man who goes on a long journey. Who's the one on the long journey? Jesus is. He's gone on a long journey and he's left behind his his goods, his own goods for the people. He's given five talents to the talented. He's given two talents to the less talented. He's given one talented, one talent to the, the one with the least ability. Each one of them according to their own goods. Now, can I stop there for a second and say, that's the way it is? Right? You ever envy somebody else because they have a lot of talent? Yeah, most of us do. You look around and you go, man, I wish I had that. Can we, just, can we just agree that God gave us what we could handle where the talent deal is concerned? That he gave us what our abilities were capable of managing. Okay? Work with what he gave you. If you're the one talent guy, the deal with that one talent is sharpen the edge on that baby. Get it as sharp and as good as you get, as improved as you can. Do everything you can with what you have. Use it. I told you my primary talent was a real problem from the time I entered school until I ended school. Talking. (laughs) But I honed that baby. (laughs) I worked on it every day. Not knowing what God had in store for me. Not knowing that someday... They would pay me to talk. (laughs) Praise God for his blessings. Whatever ability God has placed in your hands, use it. Strengthen it. Develop it. We're not all going to get the same things. We sit here and we watch these guys play and think, man, every time I've tried to play the guitar, my fingers just get in the way. I do have these giant farmer fingers. Maybe I should take up the drums. I'm not that coordinated. Maybe I should just preach. We're not all given the same things, but we're all expected to do with them the same. 
We're all expected to use them, to invest them, to try to make them all that they can be and make them even better, right? The point of the story of the talents is when God gives you a gift, it grows when you use it, right? And he expects you to use it. So first story, first we have these five virgins. We want to know how we get to be the five wise. The first explanation we get is use the gifts God gives you. Is that a reasonable answer? When God returns, when the, when the master returns, you know what you want to be found doing? Using the gifts he gave you for his glory, for his kingdom, for him. Right? Because you can use the God gifts, God, gifts God gives you for you. And you might even become famous. You might even become important in the world's eyes. And you might miss your eternal life in the end. He goes on. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all his angels are with him. He will sit on his throne, the throne of his glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. Do you remember what this story is about? Remember he separates one group out on the right hand side. And they go, how did we end up over here? How did we end up on the right side? We don't know what happened here. How, how did we get to be the wise virgins? And he says, oh, when I was hungry you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And the whole group says what? Do you remember what they say? When did that happen? Do they know that they are doing this for Jesus? No, no. In fact, he says, inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. When you did it for anyone else, you did it for me. Now, we, we get real carried away with the least of these statement. The least of these was just qualifier to say, no matter who you do it from, greatest to the least. It's not, an, it's not an ignore the greatest statement. You know, do it for the least, but those other people, let them do their own thing. It's just do it for everybody. And it's just a qualifier to give you the, the breadth of it. Okay? What's the other group say? Lord, we did all this awesome stuff in your name. Are you kidding me? We did really cool things in your name. We, we prophesied. We did all amazing stuff. We were on TV. And what does he say? I didn't know you. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. And you know what they say? Same thing the other guys say. When? Lord, if we had known we'd get extra oil in our lamp for being nice, we would have done it. If we would have known you get the wise virgin stamp for being nice, we would have done it. I mean, we got the busy bee. I got friendship badges when I was in Boy Scouts. I mean, I, I did all the stuff I was supposed to do. I helped an old lady across the street, but I, only had, I was only required to do it once. He says, your motivations are all messed up, guys. He said, you're, you're trying still to manipulate me by what you do. And it can't, it can't be done. See, the parables set up a division between those who are saved and those who are lost. 
Some are wise. Some are foolish. Some have prepared and some haven't. Well, how do they do that, Lord? How do they prepare? Well, they use the talents they've been giving for the kingdom and for the glory of God. Okay, is there anything more I should know? Yeah. When I said love your neighbor, I meant it. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the whole law. Can I draw a a distinction? The law is for you. The commandments are for you. Therefore, the blessing of of your life, there to give you a more abundant experience, there to help you live on a planet where sin rules. That's what they're there for. God says, oh yeah, you know, honor your father and your mother so that you might be blessed. Be honest so that people can trust you. Keep the Sabbath so you'll rest. Worship me because there are no other gods. Don't make idols. That's just a rock. All that's about you. And then he turns it. When Jesus comes, he turns it and he says, the whole commandment is summed up in this one idea. Love God. That's you. And love your neighbor. That's the focus of your energy. That's the focus of the church. That's the call of the wise. Care about people. Mimic the behavior of God. Love like he loves. Perfection is described by Jesus as loving like the Father who pours out his blessings on the evil and the good equally. Let's pray. Father God, most days, we're not good representatives. I pray that you would transform our hearts. That you would remove the heart of stone. That you would implant the heart of flesh. That you would teach us to love others like you love us. To mimic your steps in bringing a glass of water to a thirsty land. A helping hand to a person who's fallen. A loving place to land for a person who's struggling. In Jesus' name, amen.